Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey everybody, Sarah Larby here. Welcome back to another episode of Where Should I Invest? I'm here with Tony Miller. He is my go-to for Ottawa and the surrounding area investor, realtor, has lots of great things. And uh, we're going to have a great conversation today. Uh, but before, I must say, these are our opinions. Uh, if you like them or not, you agree or not, I mean, we'd love to hear from you as well. But these are strictly just opinions. And this is part of the uncensored. I, I want to, you know, take a little bit of a step away from my regular podcast and just bring out some some real information, some timely information, um, and you know, if at the end of the day you guys don't agree, that's that's great. I mean, in in a way, let's let's create some some uh, communication back and forth. So, Tony, yeah. welcome to the show. Hey, Sarah, how's it going? Hey, eh? good, good. How are you? Oh, great to be here, man. I'm I'm good. We're we're chugging away here in Ottawa, and our family's doing well. Our our kids are at home. One in Montreal came back to Ottawa to stay during the confinement period, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, until things sort of relax and open up again. And uh, yeah, business is is good here. So everything's fine. Awesome. So let's just take a quick step back for listeners who may not know you. Tell us a little bit about what you do and your background. Sure. So I, I toiled in the federal government system for a good 24 years. And during that time, I started investing, you know, about 2008. I started in the government about 1990. The federal government and uh, we just started you know investing 2008 I made a ton of mistakes and primarily working with the wrong realtors um, thinking that I knew everything thinking that oh yeah I've read the books uh, I've listened to the radio shows I've read newspaper articles you know I've talked to a few other investors I thought I was ready to go what turns out I was no those I didn't know crap I didn't know anything and uh, lost some money and uh, I decided, okay, well, I'll, I'll revamp and, and restart. So I learned some stuff and surrounded myself with a better team and uh, rejigged and started investing multifamily res in the Ottawa area. Uh, and then I finally, you know, things, the perfect storm kind of happened. I was getting tired of working in the government. And also I felt, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I, I was in there for so long, I felt like I didn't want to be on my deathbed thinking that I could have done so much more. That that was really something in the back of my head, you know, like, geez, there has to be more than getting up, you know, six o'clock in the morning, taking the bus to work, and then come back at five. It's, there has to be something else out there. So I decided to take the leap, uh, planned it for a couple of years while nobody knew. And that was probably the best part, Sarah. You know, when you're planning something, but you don't tell anyone except your family. That's interesting. See, for like, me, you know, I actually broadcasted it, and you know, it is it is what it is. But you know, my my work knows knows a lot about it. But I guess it, it can go both ways, right? You could have a supportive work, uh, you know, environment, and you can have one that's like, "What are you doing?" and uh, and not trust you type of thing. So that's interesting that you kept it to yourself for two years. Yeah. It helped me get through some some difficult times during work because it wasn't really fun the last four or five years there, and when things were going off the, off the rails in the back of my mind, I just 
kept saying, well, hey, they don't know, you know, what I'm planning and what I'm doing and what I'm moving towards. And that really helped me get through some of those situations. So finally in the, uh, January 2014, I, I said, sayonara, I'm out of here and uh, became an investor-focused realtor in, in Ottawa, Ottawa area. And right now, focus mainly on private money lending. Not really, I just don't have the juice. I don't have the drive like I used to, to when you first start, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to own the whole world in terms of real estate, right? I'm going to go out there and make that happen. Now I just, I'm happy just lending some money out, making some returns. If something, you know, if I were to get into something, it might be uh, maybe sell storage or maybe a large building with a couple of people here I know in Ottawa. But other than that, I just, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sort of, you know, I just don't have the drive like I used to have. But you're also doing this for the freedom, right? And I think a lot of people that get started, I mean, just, just like you, I'm like, there's got to be something more to life than just working for 30 years. And so if you don't need to do it and you don't need to hustle to the same extent because you've put yourself in a position where you're happy and you're, you're good with what you've got. I mean, I, I personally think at some point enough is enough, like in terms of wealth that you can accumulate and income that you can accumulate to yeah. be able to say, I'd rather have my time. Absolutely. And it's, it, you have to be happy with what you're doing. And if you don't know what you really want to do in the future yet, you know, just give it some serious thought and, you know, ponder it. Event, try, really try a bunch of different things, I think is the real answer. You really don't know. I tell my kids that, like, if you're not sure what you want to do, they're, they're 19 and 22. And I know the 22-year-old, she's got her stuff figured out what she wants to do. The first time it's just like go try a bunch of stuff go try it go fail it doesn't like if you try it once you don't like it great don't do it again if you like it keep doing it maybe it's something you want to keep doing or branch out into a different area within that realm yeah absolutely so i, I do want to go back though you mentioned that you're you're loaning out money how are you doing that like i'm i'm is it registered not registered what are the terms like walk us through that because there's probably some people that are you know listening to this wanting to be a little bit more passive and they might have capital that they want to loan out rather than be the active investor. Right. So I, I, I think the first thing that I would recommend for anybody, whether it's registered funds or not, the IRSP secret is a tremendous book that will give you, you know, some, some really good background. It'll tell you about 75% of what you need to know and how to do the due diligence, due diligence piece, which is the most important part for myself. I, I decided, well, if I'm going to lend money out, you know, who would I lend the money out to? What kind of projects and where? And I figured, okay, well, I'm going to stick to the Ottawa area. I want one-year terms, one-year duration, I should say, right? First or second mortgage, if, you know, depending on, on what was going on with the project. And uh, there would be people, to people who I know and to people I trust and to people with a successful track history. So those are my three, my three main points that I look for. And it turns out, I also don't, I don't really, initially I wasn't really getting into the large syndicate mortgages, you know, um, mm -hmm. I just, it's really hard to do your due diligence with those puppies. How do you do that? And I, I didn't want to lock up my money for five years, I did for three years or anything longer. Turns out I decided to go with one. I decided, okay, well, I'll, do that and that's not really private money lending sort of thing that's that's sort of like a longer term investment uh, private money lending to me at least the way i view it is 
you know, here I'm lending you money for a, a short period of time, an intermediate period of time, and I'm going to get some decent returns. Take that money out and move to the next one. So the terms I'm looking for are I can repay it anytime I want. We can renew it if we want to, right? And go for another another uh, another year, six months, whatever. Of course, the borrower pays for all of my fees. So legal fees, uh, if, it's with, if, if it's registered funds, they pay the Olympia monthly fees, the yearly fees. And every project is different in terms of interest. If, you know, first or second position, sometimes it's, and I, I have to admit, Sarah, I don't know about you, but I don't do, uh, I, I don't do anything that's not registered or not registered against real property or something else. I've done it once, or sorry, twice. And there were very, there were small amounts. There were, it's a lot of money, but there were small amounts, like 5,000 and 15,000. And you probably knew the investors as well. Yeah, you know, I, I like to, same thing, make sure that I have some, something against the, uh, the money that I'm loaning. Yeah, um, like, <laughs> like what's a promissory note? Like it, it means nothing. Yeah, it's, I mean, I know some people do it, but I, and because they want the higher fee, like the higher rates, right? So they might get 17%, they might get, and it's a shorter term, but it is definitely higher risk. And so personally for me, and I've, you know, I've moved my, cause you, you can do this, right? The banks don't tell you that you can do this and the no. advisors don't because they're going to lose money because essentially that's how they make their money is off of the uh, commissions from mutual funds, et cetera. But, you know, like you mentioned, Olympia Trust, there's community trust. You can move your money in RSPs still in tax-free savings accounts, and then you can loan it out. And I think it's just great because you have more control. Like for me, so I've loaned, um, you know, had 50, I have more than this, but 50 grand I, I've loaned out to one of my students that bought a, a property that I'm walking him through. So I'm like, I'd rather use my money for people that I know. And I'm, I'm not, I didn't charge him points or anything. I charge 9%. He can pay back whatever he wants, but I'd rather do that. And putting it into the stock market where I, in my opinion, I have um, a not enough understanding of it and be not enough control over it. I'm like, if I can guarantee myself 9% and, you know, I still have more money I want to loan out, I'd rather, you know, loan it out to people that I know to help them as, as a, even a second mortgage I'm fine with as long as I know what the property is. Yeah, totally. And it's, um, you know, the interest rates are, you said 9% right now, I'm getting anywhere between 11 and 22%. Absolutely. So, you can definitely yeah. charge more. I just, you know, because there were students, I like, I didn't want to go yeah. crazy. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's, that's awesome of you. That's, that's, that's great. It's nice of you to, you know, to do that. And you're not taking advantage of people. It's, it's just working out something that's, that's comfortable and that helps you and helps them at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I really, I really enjoy doing it. And I, I going back to the due diligence piece, it, it, it's something I don't think a lot of people, um, do enough of or a deep enough dive into I find sometimes right or they're scared to ask if I'm lending money to a friend well okay I know you and I trust you however right trust but verify or something is that the term that people do so listen I need to know this can you provide me with this what's the project can you provide me with the financials if I'm lending out 50 60k or 25k I want to know that stuff right it's hard-earned money and um, and anybody who sort of puts up a red, um, a roadblock or a red, you know, saying, no, I don't think I want to do that. Well, they're, they're just not going to get my money. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, it's, it's still hard earned money at the end of the day. We still have to make sure that we don't just, you know, loan it out too aggressively with uh, the wrong person and the wrong deal. And I will yeah. say something as, as people 
you know, maybe hearing this for the first time that you can actually take your RSP and load it out as a mortgage. It does have to be transferred to community trust and Olympia trust. And there's another one for Western Canada, I can't remember, or like Western something. Yeah. And you have to, at a minimum charge, whatever the prime is, and there's like a maximum amount of interest that you can charge as well, but 30, 30%. There you go. 30. Yeah. So, so you have to stay within certain guidelines and it has to be as a mortgage. So you can't just do a promissory note with your RSPs. Like it has to be like a first or second. So, you know, work with Olympia trust, community trust, your lawyer, if you want your mortgage broker as well, and they can, they can help you set it up, but there are some guidelines around it. And a hundred percent, you know, if you're looking to lend money out, do not lend money out to the first person who comes to you and asks for money or right? mm -hmm. get to know them. You know, uh, it's just like joint ventures. I'm, you know, I'm sort of a relationship first type of person who did joint ventures. Get to know them first, learn how to do it properly, talk to Sarah, talk to somebody and find out how to do it and, and then make the move. There's no rush, right? You're going to have time to make it happen. Just learn to do it properly, minimize your risk. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So I want to take a little bit of a, a different turn and let's talk about landlords and tenants and Tony, you're, you're part of the committee with Kayla for the Ontario Landlords Watch. And uh, I think there's about 10, 10 to 12 of us that are working together to help landlords and, and create a voice and, you know, talk to the officials to be able to make changes. It's going to be a slow process. But I think you did yes. some research on, you know, rent strikes and tenants paying, not paying. Can you share some of that insight? Yeah, for sure. We did, uh, I, we did a presentation initially. This is probably beginning of first week of April or so we did a presentation about the issues facing mom and pop landlords during COVID-19 and it surrounded primarily around poor government messaging you know it could be the prime minister saying nobody needs nobody should be worried about paying rent during COVID Doug Ford saying no one's getting evicted it could be that our, our mayor, Mayor Watson, telling people to use last month's rent to cover their expenses, which is not allowed in the RTA, right? If you look in, I think it's 106-10 is the article in the Residential Tenancies Act that doesn't permit that. So that's one thing. And it was also because of the mortgage deferral, there were plenty of tenants who said, well, listen, my landlord... He doesn't have any expenses. He only pays a, a mortgage, right? That's the only expense we have, of course, as landlords. Of course. Um, we don't have taxes yeah. or maintenance or insurance or any of that. That just disappears. No. <laughs> that just, yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, it doesn't exist. So why should, you know, the, some of the thinking was that they don't need to pay their rent because landlords don't have any mortgage payment, right? And, of course, the mortgage deferral system is kind of, you know, it's a bit of a cluster and, and hit and miss for, for many people. It, it is. And, and keep in mind that, like, unfortunately, a lot of people jumped on that thinking that it was, you know, just a deferral and there, there wasn't going to be interest on interest and there wasn't going to be any, any issues with it. But it turns out, um, I, I'm personally to the opinion and just talk about mortgage deferral. If you absolutely need to do it because you're going to lose your house, do it. If not, find another way to, to make it work because yeah. it's gonna, as an investor and somebody that's listening to this, you know, here's the thing. If, if you're a private lender, Tony, and you realize that your, your investor that's now asking you for private money, they've asked for a mortgage deferral. Like, I'm not comfortable with loaning them this if they're like, you know, the sooner, the, 
first minute that they can defer it, they've gone and deferred yeah. it and claimed financial hardship. Second of all, how are, you, how are they going to refinance? How are they going to buy more within that time frame? Like, regardless what it is, what it is, I think it's gonna it's gonna hinder that piece. And then there's always a risk because there's so many mortgages that got deferred. And um, I was on a, a webinar yesterday, and Scotia was saying it was like 15 or 17 percent of their total mortgages are now deferred. That's a big number, That's big hard. number. And mm -hmm. and so. A, it's, it's in a way, it's creating them to say, okay, well, while this is happening, we're going to say no more HELOCs for new sources of down payment because all of a sudden all these investors started calling and tried to defer their mortgages. They're like, wait a minute, you know, maybe, maybe this is not the best thing. But also, you know, when they report this to the credit bureaus, they may or may not report it correctly. So check your credit scores if, along the way as much as possible so that you don't have a ding on your credit if they reported it the wrong way. You're paying interest on the interest and your payments are going to go up at the end of the day. Yes. You still, at the end of the day, have to pay. It's, oh, yeah. it's just the deferral. Some people, unfortunately, some people thought it was just, oh, okay, great. I don't have to pay for three months. And that's not the case. And my, my takeaway from the deferral programs or any type of government program that comes into play is always wait. They'll make the announcement, but they have no clue how it's going to be implemented at the lower levels. Right. So you have to wait. And having worked in the government for 24 years, I can I, I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying this, that it takes time for everything to filter down and to be worked out. Yeah. And so don't jump on and sign up right away if you can. Like just just wait, see how things work out and then wait to hear and find out from other people who have jumped in and find out what the issues are, what the fine print says. And that's really important before you jump in. Absolutely. So, sorry, I interrupted you. You were talking yeah, about okay. the whole thing. Let's go back to that. <laughs> yeah, those are, you brought up some great points. That's awesome. So, yeah, we did the, the presentations and then we started, I, I did a survey through SurveyMonkey and posted it out to, I just like the name SurveyMonkey. I don't, I don't know why it's, <laughs> it's cool. Uh, and decided to, it's totally unscientific a survey of small landlords in Ontario asking them how their rent, rent collection went for April. I waited until after the 15th when I started because, you know, some tenants pay staggered or, you know, on the 15th, not the first, that type of thing. And I will do the same for me. And uh, the results were pretty good. Uh, I think overall, many landlords were surprised. I have some of the results here. Did you want to go Let's over some? Them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, question for you, yeah. you know, your investors that you're working with, have they all received their full payments? You know, many of them have. Just give me one second here while I do this. Yes, uh, they've been. They have been very happy with with the with what they saw in April and in May so far. I'll jump ahead to May. I asked on Ontario Landlord Watch site and just on my own Facebook page how rent collection went for May, and wow, it was outstanding. I, I'm, it just looks like almost 95% of landlords received full rent payments from their from their tenants. The commercial tenants were a little bit different story, uh, for sure. But the residential tenants um, looks to be pretty good so far. So I'm still going to send out that survey, and and I'm happy to share them with you later on once once it's all finalized. So. Just in terms of the survey, we surveyed small landlords because I don't think anybody else is doing it. Right. Um, there, I know there are some other organizations doing the larger, the big guys, the big REITs, maybe commercial. 
type of landlords. And uh, I, this is one of the presentations they did. The, the no Zoom overload is just, I told them it's going to be 10 minutes. I'm not going to be online for, you know, two hours to go over the results. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, just want to take a quick moment and introduce you to a key member of my power team. Dylan Suter is my realtor who's been working very hard to find me amazing deals. And Dylan, I'm a big proponent in working with realtors that are investors. And Dylan is truly an investor. Welcome, Dylan. And thank you so much for being a sponsor. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I want to first thank you for having us as a sponsor. We're really grateful to be working with you and all of the support you've given us over the past couple of years. So thank you so much for that. And our focus as Elevation Realty is to focus our attention primarily on real estate investors that are looking to replace their active income with a passive income and go enjoy what they like most, such as time with the family or up at the cottage, whatever it may be. So what we do is we focus our attention on creating a plan specific for each client, whether that is something they want to have five properties in five years and be able to sit on them for 10 years and then sell them and retire on the the equity. Or if they're looking to scale their portfolio and retire in the next 12 months, we can look at doing that as well through joint ventures or Airbnb short-term rentals. We can talk through buildings, buy, renovate, refinance, single family purchases, and the list goes on. That's awesome. Now, Dylan, if people wanted to reach out and get help from you, where can they go? They can check us out online at www.elevationrealty.ca, E-L-E-V-A-T-I-O-N, realty.ca, or they can email us at info at elevationrealty.ca, Give us a call or text at 905-592-4220 or check us out at The Right Club or other meetup groups that we're usually at as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dylan. It is awesome working with you as always. And now back to the show. And for those of you guys listening on iTunes or Stitcher, etc., go to the YouTube channel if you want to actually see the survey in writing and then just the slides that Tony's sharing. We're going to try to be as descriptive as possible though. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> I forgot about that. And really the, the, num- the primary use of this survey was to collect results and then share them with government officials, elected officials, to let them know what's happening out there and to influence them hopefully into saying, listen, small landlords need some financial assistance through COVID because we're the only ones who pretty much aren't getting any financial assistance, right? We're being saying, we're, we're being told there's no, no uh, evictions. Nobody can get kicked out. You're, we become like the social housing for the government basically during this, right? And it, it's pretty tough. So I think that some financial assistance would be great. And hopefully this will influence them or at least start to. I only did about, I only put about five questions in this presentation, Sarah, so it won't take very long. One question asked, how many doors do you own in Ontario? Most of the people who responded said it was fewer than 10. Okay, so they're, you know, they're mom and poppers. They're not the big uh, residential landlords. They're not the large commercial landlords, to, you know, pretty much under 10. There were a couple of, of people who responded, had a, I think it was over 100, a couple of them. Some of them had 40, 20, uh, but the majority under 10. Do you like my doors cover there? I thought that was pretty clever of me. Yes, it's good. It's nice. So it's just like a, a picture with a bunch of random colored doors. Yeah. Doors. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now we asked also, where do you invest? And it's a wide area. I think I covered 
a good 75% of the towns that responded in the survey. Ottawa was the biggest because I'm from Ottawa and a lot of my peeps responded, but had a good representation from across the province, which is really good. That's what yeah. we're looking for. So you got Timmins, you've got Barry, Niagara area, Oshawa, Brockville area, KWC, the GTA, Ottawa. So a lot of different landlords from different areas. That's good. Yeah. Hey, what's KWC? What's the C? Uh, Cambridge. Oh, okay. So I should put Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge. Gotcha. All right. <laughs> Usually they go together. I know they're different. If anybody, <laughs> I know they're different, but we all refer to them as KWC. <laughs> so we wanted to set a timeline before COVID, you know, so we thought, okay, let's ask about March before, you know, everything sort of hit the fan. And I asked it, uh, what percentage of tenants paid rent in full for March 2020? We had 171 respondents to this question. 84% of tenants paid their rent in full, according to the respondents. And that's, you know, 83 to 84% is about the average in Ontario when we're looking about how many tenants pay rent in full every month. We did some calculations and that's the number we came up with. So that's about right. Okay. So that's already scary. Because if you think about that, that means that 15% are either not paying anything at all to begin with yep. or it's partial payments so they were already in a way so you know like if you if you were a landlord with a tenant that was in the situation you're already coming in behind the eight ball 100 yeah like it's like and I, this goes back to screening tenants this is exactly what you want to make sure that you avoid is you don't want to be part of that 15 percent that's already not getting paid even prior to COVID, as an example hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. And tenant screening is important. And I think it's, you know, the, the 16%, you know, N4s, whatever notice was issued, you're not going to, it's so hard, right? You don't want to be within that group to see. So that's question three. Question four, what percentage of tenants paid rent for April, 2020? So we had 170 respondents compared to 171 for the previous question. So out of the 170, 110 landlords received 100% of April rent. And then out of the remaining 60 landlords, 68% of tenants paid rent in part or full. What do you think of that? I mean, I, I want to say I'm not surprised, unfortunately. I also have heard, so like I think CIBC did a study and it was like 15% or like 85%. Again, like there's definitely landlords out there that are striking. There's definitely, uh, sorry, tenants out there that are striking. And then there's definitely tenants that unfortunately can't pay the rent, maybe because then I mean, you have some areas there, like the GTA, like those rents are probably more than 2000. Um, oh, so yeah. Yeah. Know, they've lost their jobs and they were already paycheck to paycheck. And then all of a sudden CERB kicks in while well, it really doesn't cover it all in full. So no. No. it's, uh, it is unfortunate because that's a, that's a big so it went from 80, you said 84% yep. of tenants paid rent in full to yep. 68. That's right. That's a big drop. It's a big drop. What's your take on it? I think it's, I think the number is, is, it's a big drop. And I think partly it does have to do with perhaps tenant screening is very important. And I know you're a big advocate, right? Of, of showing people how to that's not like pretty much the only big control that we have <laughs> it is yeah absolutely and uh, uh the next screen will show you will break down the reasons why now i do know that like in bc 
some of the percentages are even lower, at least in some of the reports that I saw. I read a couple of articles and so it was even lower than this. And keep in mind that BC, they are getting a rent subsidy of 500 bucks. Mm -hmm. um, not that that, you know, it helps, but it's not going to cover rent, of course, and all the other expenses. No, so, I don't yeah. think that that's all they have to pay, right, as well. They'd be like, oh, you know what, the city's helping my my landlord. I don't have to worry about it. They're getting 500 bucks. They can defer the mortgage. Like that's, I, I mean, I don't know. But I'm, I'm thinking some tenants are probably having that mentality, just like the tenants here have some type of mentality, some of them, about not paying if they don't need to put, you know, food comes Oh, from. yeah, yeah. The, the, the lack of understanding of how real estate works and how property ownership works and the expenses and, and all that stuff, like it's very, it's, it's limited, right? Yeah, a lot of people own homes and people rent, but the actual understanding of how real estate works, uh, real estate investing works is, is pretty low. At least that's what I found through this survey. Yeah, that's also in a way why, you know, we're the top 1% is because a lot of people don't understand it. a lot of people don't get into real estate and a lot of tenants, you know, will just be tenants for a long, long, long time yeah, or yeah. be homeowners at one point. But yeah. you know, the, the people that take the time to learn about real estate and then real estate investing, I mean, that's very minimal. Yeah. You know, and I can't remember what the stats were, but like there is a percentage of people like, I don't know, maybe like a handful of a percentage that had a second house. And then once you get like past two and three, like it goes from like 1%, zero point, like we are such a small minority and I, and sorry, I don't, I just don't remember the stats, but it was such a minority that like anybody that has like over five is like 0.0 something, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and this is why, and I think in a way that the government is not thinking so much about us. Cause they're like, you know, there's such a small percentage of people. We get, get our votes from, tenants we get our votes from the middle class the homeowners etc yeah and yet we provide small landlords provide 49 percent of the rental housing stock yeah can you say that again because i think that's really important and that's a, like a key takeaway 49 percent of the rental stock is provided by small landlords so bomb and pop landlords who own something less than 15 doors uh maybe a few properties that type of thing yeah, so in a way, we are helping with the whole housing shortage issue, um, but unfortunately, I don't think we get the the recognition and the you know no. the no. help from the government because the rest of it is what large landlords lords and then you know social housing. Yes, not for profit as well, and you know it it really we're easy whipping we're easy whipping for for, for elected officials and for people out there. So we definitely have a lot of work to do to change the public perception about, about landlords in general, but especially the small landlords. And, you know, try to, try to turn the, you know, we, the vilification of landlords in the media continues. And we've seen that last year in Ottawa with Airbnb and uh, long-term rental uh, bylaws and, now with COVID and, you know, we see a lot of pro-tenant. Heck, the Ottawa Citizen published a, a full-page op-ed for one of the rent strikers. You know, maybe it was paid for, I don't know, but like what, you know, it, kind of irresponsible, I'd say, but um, yeah. yeah, I'll move on to the next slide here. All right, question number six. Why didn't the tenants pay April 2020 rent 
in part or in full. So earlier I had mentioned the comments made by Prime Minister Trudeau, Doug Ford, and that's our mayor, if, if you're watching on the, on the video on, on YouTube, that's Jim Watson in the top left. He's the one who said, use your last month's rent to help cover expenses. And I want to just emphasize, and I know you said that you can't do that. You can't, like, just don't do it because that is that for last month's rents. That really yeah. needs to be used for last month. So, yeah. um, you know, again, if you do that at the board, like, it's just, it just really complicates a whole lot of stuff. I don't know, Tony, if you want to add anything or add any comments to that, but I would just say, don't do it. It's not supposed to be for when they can't pay. It really needs to be for the last yeah. month. Yeah, once it once you you spend it, it it doesn't look good at the board if you're going there. Like you're you've already dug your hole, and it, there's no guarantee that the tenants will be able to pay you last month's rent back, like on a future date if they stick around. Then what do you do when last month's rent comes around? You know, maybe you need that last month's rent at time. It's it's just don't do it. it don't have to do it at all. Um, mm -hmm. Another reason I mentioned the mortgage deferral issue. Right. Uh, some some tenants said, hey, man, you know, I don't uh, I don't need to pay rent. You're not paying any mortgage. Why should I pay rent? Uh, the landlord tenant board in Ontario, most eviction hearings are are not being heard like they're they're just put off. And so those were the main reasons. But then we look at the numbers, Sarah. Here we go. Here's some good numbers. I don't know if everyone can see that. Let's so, let's just be descriptive and walk through each one. You got it. So again, the question is, why didn't the tenants pay April rent in part or in full? The number one reason was loss of employment at 19.5%. So these are people who legitimately lost their employment, lost their jobs because of COVID-19. These are the people who, as landlords, we want to help, right? We want to work with them. You know, it's not their fault that COVID hit. It's not their fault they lost their jobs. They're not doing it maliciously. So these are the people that we're trying to help as much as we can, even though we have limited funds and limited resources, you try to work something out with them. So loss of employment was numero uno. I'm going to go in order of, of uh, percentage size, okay? And the number two reason why tenants didn't pay, and this one sort of kind of surprised me, kind of didn't, was because of comments made by the prime minister, the premier, and municipal mayor. So pay food before paying rent. No one should be evicted during COVID. Uh, no one should have to worry about paying rent. Those type of messages really resonated with the masses, with the tenants. And 11.6% of tenants didn't pay rent for these reasons. That's pretty high, eh? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it makes me a little bit angry that, you know, the, the, unfortunately those landlords have to be explaining, you know, why those comments were made or how, you know, how they were not right. Um, yeah. And it's a, he said, she said, you know, this is the, the stuff that unfortunately gets mentioned in the media and people say, it, and then this, these are the consequences of what happens. Yeah. Words matter when they come come from elected officials. And I know I was pretty active in trying in asking local officials at least to, you know, be careful with their messaging and please put out messages like this. And I give them examples. Um, didn't work that well, but 
you know, at least uh, at least we tried. Now the the next one, in terms of uh, percentage, the the next reason why tenants didn't pay rent was because of the landlord tenant board being somewhat closed or not here, not processing evictions, and that was at ten point three percent. So again, taking advantage of the system. Yep, hundred percent. And then the next one, if I'm looking here, okay, well, some people, this is another case of legitimate reasons is, is that the tenants were still employed, but they lost income. So their hours were cut, perhaps. Yeah, I guess that's, that's probably the primary, primary reason. So this is probably a lot of people that paid partial, as an example. Yes. That 8.54% exactly. that lost some income. Yeah, 100%. So again, these are, that's a legitimate reason. You know, they're not doing it on purpose and trying to hurt landlords or anything like that or there anybody else it's just you try to help them as much as you can and that's all you can really do mm -hmm. uh, then we move to uh, the mortgage deferral program was next in line at roughly eight percent of the people responded saying that's why tenants didn't pay their rent in full or in part and so because of the perception that they're like, well, my landlord can defer their mortgages for six months. I shouldn't have to pay rents if, if they can defer their mortgage. And unfortunately, they don't realize, first of all, whether a landlord has a mortgage or not is none of the business anyways. But there's other expenses. There's yeah. a lot of maintenance, taxes, insurance. I mean, you name it. Like there's other expenses that we factor in. It's not just a mortgage. There's there's so many more expenses. And I think you nailed it. It's it. Bluntly, it's none of their business. It's none of their beeswax, right? It's here, I'm here to provide you with some housing. You either want it or you don't. And I'm not getting into my financial details with you. It's none of your beeswax, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, move on if you don't like it. That's, that's basically where I'm at with it. Yeah. Then, finally, I think we're at the last one. Now, this is the last one that I, I really pay close attention to in, in April. I, we noticed that there were a lot of there was a lot of momentum out there for them, and people were sending me some screenshots of some of the comments being made within the rent striker groups, and uh, I thought they were going to have a larger impact at least in in April because they had a lot of momentum it seemed built up, and maybe they didn't have as much as I thought. So they only came in they came in at only three percent, which is great. Now three percent that you know, there are still landlords out there who are uh, being hurt by, by them. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate that it's happening. But in the grand scheme of thing, things, they haven't had that much of an impact. Now, if you're wondering what a rent striker is, there are, I break them down into two groups. One of them being the group that are perhaps, they're more on the communist side, left-wing anarchist, who don't believe in private ownership at all. And they're really using COVID as a way to hurt people and to push forward their agenda. That's really what they're about. And then the second group of, of rent strikers, and they're pretty, they're pretty organized as well, the rent strikers, have to admit, the first group. And then the second group are really the people who fall in, you know, what the other groups like what the premier said, what the prime minister said, the mortgage deferral, property tax deferral, the LTV. I still group them in as rent strikers, but they're just using those reasons for not paying rent. Okay. Uh, so 3%, Sarah, uh, you know, not that big of a, not that big of a hit. We'll see what happens in May and June. If things 
don't improve, let's say, then maybe they will have more momentum and more people joining their group. Like the auto, like one Facebook group has something like three or 4,000 members. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what? So I look at this and this is what my thoughts are. And just like in general, right? There's that small percentage of horrible tenants to begin with. That's probably yep. there. And then there's a horrible small percentage of horrible landlords. Um, probably similar as well. Like I think the majority of, you know, and I always said 5%, 5% are bad both ways, right? Goes both ways. But my, my bigger concern is a lack of proper information. So you've got, you know, tenants that realize that you can defer your mortgage and think that that means that they don't have to pay. Let's call that 8%. And then you've got your tenants that heard the, the minister, prime minister or the mayor saying, don't worry about, you know, rents. Let's call that another 12%. So that's almost the same amount of people that are not paying based on misinformation versus the people that truly just lost their employment. It's essentially like 20% for each, right? So that to me, that's concerning is the, the fact that the media sends the wrong messages, they get interpreted a certain way. And these, this is the 20% cause from that. This is the effect from that. Yeah. To me, that's concerning the rent strike thing. You know, yes, it was scary, I think, before April 1st. Um, you probably know at this point in time if you're rent striking, you have tenants that are rent striking or not. But the bigger, my bigger concern is, oh my God, this lack of information is actually just quite unfortunate. It is. And it's, it goes back to, I think it's the number one, one of the primary things that we need to change is the perception, the information that's put out there. And, you know, change, change the the perception that all landlords are are scuzzy and you know not good people that type of thing because um, yeah it, it's it shows right here it, it definitely does it's time to change that narrative for sure yeah and you know what the the thing is like you said is that forty nine percent are small landlords so that could be two houses three properties etc just a small number or you know they have a full-time job and they have the one or two properties to help them so that they don't have to necessarily only rely on the government when they're retired. So a lot of these people are just regular people. Like we're not just, you know, no. in, in cash and being like, I don't have to do anything. Like a lot of the landlords probably lost their job too in our answer, just like the tenants. And I think yes. there's got to be that realization from many of them to say like, they're no difference. They've just taken a little bit more risk. And instead of investing in paper assets, they decide to invest in brick and mortar. That really is like a choice that people make. Like I can invest in whatever I want. If I don't want to invest in paper assets, because I believe that real estate is the better way. And I do, you know, it doesn't make like in the beginning, like one, when I had one or two houses, I was still working and I needed that income. Now I don't need the income. I'm, you know, it's a different story, but when you're first starting and the majority of these small landlords don't have 15 properties, don't have 10 properties, they'll have like one or two or three and they yeah. need their income to still support it because here's the thing in ontario you know with the mortgage the taxes the insurance the vacancy etc etc like the cash flow is not that good it really it really isn't you're banking on mortgage pay down you're banking on overall appreciation over time um, over time not short term and then the cash flow gets better in my opinion as tenants move out and you can reset back to market rents that's where I'm like, I'm going from two, three hundred dollars cash flow to you know six, seven, eight hundred because I yeah. bought that property. My tenants moved out after three years. Now I can up the rents. That to me is where I'm making my money. And this is why when I screen my tenants, I don't want them staying there forever. 
because yeah. I, need, I need them to, to move so I can uh, get back to market rents. Right. Totally makes sense. Yeah. And, and looking at these numbers as well, the, the, the primary thing that I take apart, that I take away from this is that mom and pop landlords take a high, take much more risks than some of the, you know, longer term landlords who have been around for a long time, long-term investors. Uh, they have less room for air and it's really important for them to have success when they first start out with their first and second property so that they can buy more should they choose. In Ottawa, the, the city, one of the councillors pushed for calling a, a housing emergency, housing and homeless emergency in Ottawa, which is definitely true. Like there's no doubt about it. So in order to fix the housing piece, and including affordability and availability, is to encourage and entice people to become small landlords, to build more rental stock, to do conversions, maybe convert your basement into a legal suite, maybe add a coach house or a tiny home or something along that lines, and build more rental stock because the vacancy, the overall vacancy rate is below one here in Ottawa. So, and it's not gonna get improved anytime soon. So what's gonna happen is that we look at these numbers and if I'm a new landlord, Sarah, and I'm coming in and then this happens and I realize that the government doesn't have my back, the land, the RTA doesn't have any teeth to it, the landlord tenant board sucks. And, you know, in, at least for, in my view, if you're, you know, if you're a new, new landlord coming in, well, the tenants don't give a crap either. Like some of them are rent striking. Why am I getting into this business? The heck with it. I'm not going to build anymore. I'm not going to rent out places anymore. I'm going to go invest somewhere else in something different. Therefore, taking rental housing off the market, which of course will lower supply and increase rent, which is the opposite of what's needed. So it makes it. It's in the it's in the local officials, the provincial best interest to you know work with us to help change the narrative about small landlords and to improve our situation. In the end, it hurts the housing supply, and we're in dire need rental supply here in Ottawa. Yeah, and I think those effects won't actually be felt for for a while, but they are they are slowly happening, right? I mean, here's the thing is I would I would not like I would not be here if it wasn't for real estate investing. You know, mm -hmm. I'm I'm happy that I got to where I am today. Have I had a couple tenants that were iffy? Absolutely. Um, this is why you build the processes over time and just to, you know, screen screen out as much as possible. And you, you help with, you know, you build processes for the management part if you're self-managing. But I can see somebody that's thinking about, mm, should I go into investing in stocks? Should I go into Bitcoin? Should I go into real estate? Real estate seems like a lot more of a headache. Is it actually worth it? Yes. You know, I think I personally know that it is just because I can see what I've been able to do and I would have never been able to do that in paper assets. However, yeah, you know, it does take time to learn it. It's not like you're just like making a quick transfer on your computer and, you know, hope for the best type of thing. Like it's definitely a little bit more hands-on. I would say a lot more hands-on if you're active. Yes. Um, you know, Tony, like if you, you know, you're loaning out your money now, you're, you're a little bit more passive. You can do that as well, which I still think is a better option because you can at least determine the, the rate that you want and the terms that you want. But as a new landlord or somebody that's just thinking about getting started, like, I mean, I, I wouldn't blame them if they're like, should I actually start in Ontario <laughs> or should I go and 
start somewhere else. And I, I still believe in Ontario. I still think the market fundamentals absolutely make sense. Yeah. And over time, I think I will do better in Ontario than going to Alberta. That's just my take just because of the yeah. market fundamentals. Yeah. But, you know, it's definitely not for everybody. There's ups and downs and there's good and bad. And, you know, unfortunately, the tenants can play a big part into, uh, into your success, especially at the start. You know, once you have a few properties over time and you've got the you know, odd bad one here and there, it's not a big deal if you've got to go to the board and, you know, one of your units is not paying. But when you, you first start, that's, that's, that would be a tough one. It is. It, it's tough financially and it's tough emotionally. It just pulls the juices from you and you're saying, ah, screw it. Why, why should I do this? And, you know, don't, you know, if it, nowadays, like when I started back in 2008 or something, there, there wasn't as much online information or as many groups and clubs and that type of thing out there to help people. And if you're looking to get into real estate investing, like take the time and immerse yourself in in organizations and groups and talk to people and uh heck hire hire a coach if you have to like to get through or work with an investor focused realtor to help you get through that those first few properties because you know we'll tell you that no that property sucks it's not for you it's not the right thing for you do you want to move on to the next one sure okay all right this one actually brought up a lot of discussion when i posted it on facebook question eight is how are you handling vacancies right now? So I just wanted to find out, you know, what's going on. Like I had heard that some landlords weren't filling vacancies. And the reason why they weren't filling vacancies was because of the risk of finding tenants who may not be able to pay, who may lose their jobs, lose their income, or maybe they're one of the rent striker groups or tenants. So they just felt that the risk was was too high. So I, that's why I asked this question. And I was really surprised at the numbers. 70% uh, came back and said, yes, I'm filling or attempting to fill vacancies. 30% said that they are leaving their units vacant. And I found that really high. Yeah. But you know, if you don't have the right tenant, those people are, are, are smart to just hang tight and just wait and then, and then do their due diligence after the fact. But you know, my, my thoughts are if you don't have the right tenant, I would rather leave mine vacant as well. And, you know, and slowly look for the right one. I, I filled one of mine for May and she had sold her house and she was closing on it. And so I was, you know, obviously did due diligence. I was comfortable with her. She's great. But if I didn't find her, I actually probably would have waited. Really, eh? Yeah. Yeah, because I want to see how people handle this time. And I want, you know, it's it's a tough situation. Like, I think I'm, I'm in a lucky position that if I have it vacant, I'll be fine, right? I, I would rather take my time than to fill with the wrong person. Yes, and you have the, you have the financial uh, ability to do so. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, okay, this was a survey for mom and pop landlords who may not have the financial ability. Some are still working or may not be working because of COVID. And that's why I was a bit surprised by 30%. So I will, maybe I'll ask you, like, how much does this have to do with a lack of faith in their tenant screening ability? I mean, I'm sure it's, it's half and half. Like the other thing that I'm thinking of is in, in addition to them not you know, 100% maybe knowing how to find the right tenants and screen through it, I think part of it is 
showing the property, you know, are tenants really looking? Um, are they actually showing up to the property? How do you handle showing the property with them in there with everything that ha is happening with COVID and the health, you know, concerns around that. I think that's, that's probably a portion too, yeah. you know, and then just hearing all the media stuff and people not wanting to deal with those tenants that are on rent strike or listening to the government about not having to pay rents. So I think it, it's probably a mix of many things. Yeah. What are your thoughts? No, I agree with what you said. All three. It's, it's usually not just one thing. It's usually a combination of things. And mm -hmm. I didn't ask why they aren't filling the vacancies. So I will ask that for, for May. And we'll come, we'll be able, I'll be asking like the same question. So we'll be able to at least, you know, track and see trends. Um, so I, yeah, I agree with you. It's a combination of things. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Last one. By the way, you skipped question seven and nine, right? Yes. Okay. I, I left them out because they, they weren't, yeah, survey, I, I'm new to Survey Monkey and I couldn't figure out how to get the, <laughs> the charts out. No, that's okay. I'm like, I just want to make sure I'm following along. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So question 10 is taking into account me measures such as mortgage deferrals, property tax deferrals, utility cost deferrals. Will you require financial assistance from the government in order to carry your properties over the next three to four months? A okay, pretty straightforward question. Um, so 57.3% responded saying it's just too early to tell. And that was expected. Mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting something. Yeah, uh, this was pretty much what I thought. Uh, no at 25.7% and roughly 17% said yes, they will require assistance despite the other programs that are already in place. I'm 17%. So that's interesting because when Scotia was talking, that was like, it was 15 or 17% of mortgages that got deferred. Ah, okay. Yeah. Too early to tell. So again, we'll, we'll find out in, in what the results will be in May. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll see if that number of too early to tell uh, decreases or increases. And we'll see what the confidence level is like. You know what I am concerned about, though? Like, and this, this doesn't shock me. Like, it, it, this was done in April, for April, right? So it, it makes sense. It was likely too early at that point in time. But the yes, yes part, the 17% that say yes, I mean, if you buy a piece of property, like, especially if it's your first one or your first two, have, like, three to four months. I mean, this is a great, like, learning and, and a great chart for, for people to have a buffer of three to four months of expenses per property. Absolutely. I mean, as you, as you scale and you have more properties, it's, you probably don't need the same exact amount, but you know, as you're having one, two, three, four, five, um, have three months of expenses in there. Cause you know, like you never know what's going to happen. Um, right. yeah, it's, it's really important when you're, when you're buying property. I'm the type who, you know, a lot of people use, you know, four months of mortgage payments and property taxes and put that into the reserve fund and, you know, keep adding to it. I'm the type I just take, ah, frig it, uh, here's 20K, talk, you know, pop it in. I don't run the numbers or whatever. I just, I just know based on the property and how the condition of it and where it's located and all that, here, I'll just put it in there. Um, it's really, really important to take the cash flow that you have, what you make, and put it aside. Right. I can't stress that enough. How many people, you know, I work primarily with newer investors or ones who are just starting out and 
amount, the number of times I hear people say, oh, I want to live off my cash flow. And I honestly don't know many people or any people who are living off their real estate investment portfolio cash flow alone for day-to-day -day living and for everything. They always have multiple streams of income. And if it's really important to put money aside too, you know, if you're getting cash flow, great, put that into reserve fund because you're going to have capital costs down the road. You're going to have things that happen. You know, I've had a, a place in Halifax burned down unexpected. Thank God I had some reserve funds, right? Because insurance will help, but it doesn't cover everything. Trust me. Mm -hmm. uh, you're still going to pull some money out of your own pocket or out of your reserve to make it to, to support it. So I can't stress that enough. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. I mean, you know, all of this is a, is a good wake up call, I think for a lot of people. Um, but also, you know, it could be a reassurance for those that, that planned um, for the good and for the bad as well. Yeah, for sure. That's it. That's the survey. That's awesome. Well, you know, thanks so much for sharing that. I mean, that's, this is insightful. I'm, I'm really interested to see what the May is like. Um, if, you, uh, if you have that, it'd be great to, to have you share that. Tony, obviously, you're, you're, you've been in real estate for a while. Like, what's some advice that you would give to the investors today for how to handle your, you know, the next six to 12 months? Uh, I think that if you're a seller, my, my advice is if you own properties and you're thinking of selling, uh, don't sell, uh, ignore. And I've said this before on, on different, uh, webinars and podcasts, uh, ignore the headlines. There's a lot of fear out there. Just ignore it. Ignore the realtors who are who may be pressuring you to sell or you know want you to sell. Don't sell. Uh, and forget about the investors that come knocking and saying, "Hey, you know, let you should sell or I want to buy it from you." If you bought your property based on economic fundamentals and uh, in a good location, and you remember why you bought it in the first place, hold on to it. Right, property values and the real estate market. If you bought in the right place, it, generally, I don't. It's not going to crash. It's not going. There's no bubble sort of thing. Yes, the the values may drop depending on your market, but don't sell. Talk to somebody who who understands the market, who works with investors, and someone you trust, and get some real legit information before doing anything. If you need to sell, if you have to sell, uh, then go ahead. But, you know, uh, maybe there's other ways you can hold on to your property through creative real estate means, okay? Uh, there might be some other ways to do that. If you're a buyer, um, right now in Ottawa, heck, there's things are, are, over the last week, have gotten busier in Ottawa for sure in terms of the, the number of listings and, and sales and all that type of stuff. Um, yeah, I don't, I'm not expecting to see that many deals. Remember at that first, Sarah, we were thinking, okay, well, there's going to be a lot of people losing their properties are going to have to sell. Now that we're this far into it today, and now my opinion may change in a, in a month or so, but as of today, I don't think that there's going to be a ton of them. It's not going to be like the wild west of, woo, here's some properties that we can buy below market and, and rent out. I, I just don't see that happening right now. Not in our markets anyways, right? So like, I don't know about Alberta. I can't talk yeah. about Alberta and what's happening with the, you know, that whole industry. And it's just very reliant on the oil and gas, et cetera. And, you know, yeah. kind of what's happening with oil. But 
I, I tend to agree with you. I, we haven't seen prices drop yet. You know, again, we're recording this right now. It's the beginning of May. By the time it airs, it might be six weeks later. However, I also don't see rents really dropping. And I know that like I've seen some stats where like they're dropping by like 3% or so. Like it might just be the types of properties, et cetera. Like it's, it's hard to really say that rents are going to drop. I'll tell you, I'm not dropping any of mine. Mm -hmm. I, you know, just had a tenant that I filled, like I mentioned, the prior tenant was paying 1545. This new tenant is paying 1795. Um, and I didn't get any requests for lowering any of that. But I, I think regardless, like you said, the vacancy rates are so low where we are. Um, and if anything, if people have to sell, then they're going to need to live somewhere. So if somebody's selling something, they're going to rent something um, yeah. or they're going to buy something else. But I also don't see any, and again, I don't know for sure, but I don't see any big changes until CERB is done and, and mortgage deferrals are resumed. If we're going to see something, it'll be in that four to seven month mark, I think. Or maybe we get a big second wave of COVID. Like, yeah. we just don't know, right? Yeah. And I think in terms of like the rents, I, I think you really have to break it down to the type of tenants, your tenant profile. Like in Ottawa right now, it's trying to find students is very difficult. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult. I have a vacant four unit available for anybody who's watching. And, <laughs> uh, and also Airbnb. Though Airbnb in Ottawa, it is like they're, it's busy. There's, they seem to be doing like 30 day contracts are really popular. But I do know that they've had to adjust their, their, their cost, their rent as well. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. I want to take a quick pause from the podcast to introduce you to some of my amazing contractors. On this week's episode, I wanted to introduce you to Rob and Joel from White's Elm Design Build. And Rob and Joel just finished my major renovations on my latest Burlington project. And it was a full renovation and absolutely worth it. They've been super easy to work with. I wanted to give you guys some insights on some of the services that they offer their clients and they focus on Oakville to Hamilton and beyond, but they're really great. Like if you guys are ever in a property and you want to FaceTime or video call Rob or Joel, they can actually give you some insights on what to look for and also how much we are looking at renovations. Because if you're thinking about doing a flip or a burr project, the reno part is really important to get right to also figure out how much it's going to cost and what renos are going to be needed to get the actual maximum after repair value. So super important. They will gladly do these video calls or conference calls with you guys to give you some of those insights. They're really good at getting back to clients quickly. They can also do physical walkthroughs. If you guys are thinking about purchasing a property or you have it under contract, they can do that with you. They're super professional and uh, they've been very involved in my latest project and uh, really on the ball. So super easy to communicate with. They finished on time, on budget which is really important as we know. And they've got a whole team of trades. They line them up so that they're as efficient as possible. And they work with a lot of investors, but they also do some of the higher end flip types of projects too. So they work on everything in between. They're fully licensed, insured, WSIB covered. So feel free to reach out to them. They are able to be found at White 
elmdesignbuild.com. That is whitealmdesignbuild.com. Or you can send them an email, joel, J-O-E-L, at whitealmdesignbuild.com or rob at whitealmdesignbuild.com. Good luck on your next projects. Now back to the show. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole Airbnb thing, actually, just yesterday, they were saying that Airbnb had to lay off a lot of their workforce. So, I mean, they're, they're likely predicting that the travel in and out of the country, as an example, the tourism will be reduced, which I can see, mm-hmm. uh, you know, until this is, this is over. Because even if we go back to work, I mean, we're not necessarily reopening our borders to the same amount to this, all the same countries, et cetera. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the Airbnbs that will do well, I can see my cottage doing really well. People are likely not going to want to get out of the country to travel this summer. They may just rent out a cottage, but I can also see Airbnbs doing well for, like you said, like the 30 days, the 60 days, you know, people needing a place while they're waiting for their home to be closed or divorces. So they're looking at something short term before they, they find their more permanent, um, likely cheaper, longer term rent uh, housing. So I I think there's going to be some opportunities there with Airbnb. I think the investors that just banked on Airbnb and didn't have a backup plan and had, you know, many that they were running through that Airbnb strategy that were expensive and they were also getting high rents, those people may be in trouble. So I I could see some of, of those investors potentially not being able to sustain that market and having to sell. And is there going to be more long-term? Are those going to be converted to long-term? I don't know. If somebody's Air, was Airbnb and that's what they wanted to do and they didn't want to deal with long-term tenants, I think they're probably just going to sell. Yeah. And maybe a small percent will, will change them to long-term. But Yeah. Well, the, the many short-term rentals, the numbers won't work as long-term rentals. Yeah. Anyways, right? The, the, the cost and the expenses, it just doesn't have any cash flow for somebody perhaps. Mm -hmm. So I know that happens. And, and also the regulations that are in place, you know, in Ottawa, they're still working on writing the bylaw. I don't know. You know, it's, I I think that most people will, or I won't say most, but many people, I've already seen some, they're, they're selling their short-term rentals, could be single family homes or town homes. What's interesting though, when it comes to Airbnb with, we look at hotels and they're really just like, there's not a lot of people staying at hotels right now because of lack of tourism. And honestly, who wants to stay in a hotel when during COVID with all that air being transferred to everybody, you know, all that type of stuff. And you're in proximity with everybody else if they don't have kitchens. And I think that's one reason why Airbnbs, at least in Ottawa, you know, the, the, the one month, the two month type of thing that you mentioned seem to be working because we have a lot of, military people we have embassy staff embassy workers who you know military transfers who need places to stay and a lot of home health care people as well who work in the hospitals they don't want to go home and infect their their families so they're renting airbnbs to stay at during covid mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and just go back to the hotels like not all hotels but i, I did hear some of them were were housing the homeless Yes. So if they're housing the homeless, I mean, okay, people don't hate me, but how many bed bugs is that going to create for that hotel? Yeah. It, it, and, and other problems, of course, but I'm just thinking like that whole sanitary piece and you know, how, how are they going to be dealing with that once this is all over? Sarah, that's a, that's a whole podcast in itself. Eh? It's like the, <laughs> the, the, the movement is hotels to homes. 
So the cities are looking at purchasing vacant hotels or motels and pr provide housing to the homeless. So there's a lot of work that has to finding hotels, motels that are open to selling, retrofitting the rooms at, at a large cost, of course, has to be done. But if you've ever owned any type of rooming house, which is really a, uh, a transitional home for people coming out of, of, of shelters and the likes, you really, you know, in my opinion, anybody who owns a rooming house needs to have healthcare workers on their team, right? And like, and pay them <laughs> to be there because your tenant profile, that's, that's who you're servicing. That's who you're helping. They're not, you know, the, they need the, the support. So when it, when they go into hotels, well, where's that support going to come from? And you're right. There's a whole bunch of other challenges where there is a higher percentage of, of, of bed bugs and mental health issues and addictions that have to be, have to be looked after. Do you, do you bring kids in then into that situation? Right. Okay. You know, I'd be worried about the, the single moms or the, the mothers uh, and their children going into that situation. Is that some place to be? I don't know. I'm not an expert in that, you know, in healthcare or anything like that, but those are just my initial thoughts. Absolutely. Tony, I mean, it's been, it's been wonderful. I'm just looking at the time. I think we've been talking for like an hour and 15 minutes. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and awesome. Really these podcasts are like 30, 40 minutes, but it's just so much information and, uh, and you know, so you have so much knowledge and insights and thank you for putting together the, uh, the survey and sharing the data. Where can our listeners, my listeners find out more and reach out to you? Facebook, just Google Tony Miller, Facebook, or if you're on Facebook, just check me out, send me a friend request. Just let me know that, uh, you listen to Sarah's podcast or you watch it on YouTube and, and I'll say, yeah, man, let's become friends. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tony, for being on the show. It was a You're pleasure. Welcome, Sarah. You're Thanks welcome. Thanks for having me. Time. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. So that was my interview with Tony Miller. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Keep in mind, I am available. If you have any questions, my website is sarahlarby.com. You can send me an email at sarah at sarahlarby.com. And there are some new courses that you can take online. There's some group coaching available as well. And, uh, if you have any questions, again, you can reach out to me. And then also on Instagram at Investor Sarah Larby. Thanks for those who rated the show, left a review. Thank you. If you haven't yet, if you wouldn't mind doing that, that would be greatly appreciated. I just got a couple new ones in the last week. So thank you to those that uh, uh, set something through. It, uh, it makes my day and makes these podcasts awesome. Um, it'll help gain more viewers and thank you very much guys for your support. So hopefully everyone's doing well during this time. And this is a good time to think about not only relying on one source of income, your job could be here today, could be gone tomorrow. The company could be here today, could be gone tomorrow. Take control over your own financial wealth, your own future. I would say, you know, COVID, I mean, it sucks. This whole economic, you know, freeze, it sucks, but it is so much more bearable when there is more than one source of income. Real estate investing has got me there. And for you, it could be something like real estate investing. And also you could start a business, uh, but just keep in mind that you want that control because this will be something new in three years, something different in five years. And you want, if you're not in the position that you want to be at, 
today listening to this. Make sure that the next time around, if your job decides to lay you off and you're on CERB right now, that next time this happens, you don't need to worry about that. So on that note, guys, thanks for tuning in and see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.